And as I'm sure you've learned by now, the posture won't necessarily be perfect, meaning the sensations won't be perfectly pleasant. But we do the best we can, creating a stable base in the sitting posture. And out of this stable base, we cultivate a balanced and upright posture. There's a sense of composure and release throughout the body and the mind. You might find it helpful to take a few conscious, easy, deep breaths, slowly filling and slowly emptying the lungs a couple times. And with each of these long inhalations, you can have the intention to be open, to be intimate, interested in the way the body is. So breathing in, feeling the body just as it is. And then with each exhalation, a simple intention for the body to release what it can release. Breathing in, feeling sensitivity, exhaling, release, letting go. And for this opening exercise, you can even repeat those words in your mind. So as you're breathing in slowly, deeply, you can repeat the word feeling or sensitivity, knowing the body as it is. And then as you exhale, you can repeat the word letting go or releasing. A couple more times, letting the breath become a little bit longer, but without straining. finished with the next long and easy exhalation, then allow the breathing to continue on its own. So just trust the body to breathe however it can, however it does.
remembering our aspiration. May this mind be clear, alert, and relaxed with the conditions of the present moment just as they are. Clear and peaceful with everything that comes and goes. Undefended, May this heart or mind be free, free from suffering, from stress. So letting the mind naturally rest in the experience of sitting, or more generally, just letting the mind rest in the experience of the present moment as it actually is now. So the mind is resting in its natural state of knowing or natural state of awareness. So we're just letting the natural sensitivity of the mind express itself. knowing that the body is like this, here and now. Can this be okay? And feel free to repeat the word relax as often as is useful, just as a reminder because it's easy to forget that there's this possibility of relaxing the mind and body. We're relaxing into the way it is. We're relaxing into the present moment as it is. Into the simple, clear knowing that it's like this. And to help stabilize this simple state of mind, this simple knowing, we can direct the attention to the natural movement of the breath in the body. So we're giving the mind a particular anchor to practice resting with. So we're resting in awareness that knows the breath coming in and the breath, that, and the breath going out. but not needing to control it, the breath naturally will come in eventually and it naturally goes out all on its own. And because the mind is sensitive, it will naturally know the sensations of the in-breath and naturally know the sensations of the out-breath. Usually feeling the touching as the breath goes in and out of the nostrils, or for some people, feeling the natural expansion and contraction of the abdomen. And remember that you might want to actually note 
the movement of the belly in, or rather rising and falling, or if you're feeling the breath at the nostrils, you could mentally note in and out, but only if it supports this relaxed, clear, mindful attention. Without getting tight, have the intention for the mind to develop a continuity of this present moment attention. So an unbroken knowing of the breath and any distractions that come. So we don't need to be afraid of distractions or thoughts but just have the intention to notice them as quickly as they arise. When you can, to return back to the simple, clear awareness of the breathing process.
mindful awareness is capable of including everything that arises in the field of experience. Seeing things and letting them be.
you might notice that at times the mind gets caught up in distraction, identified, constricted. So at these times, step one is to simply recognize what's happening. So the mind actually recognizes that it's caught up that it's attached or reactive in some way. Simply recognize and maybe note, meaning make a mental note, ah, worrying is like this. Judging is like this. Not liking is like this. So whatever the particular drama, just to name its particular flavor, And then after recognizing the practices to not act out what's alive in the mind. So if there's a not liking, just because we don't like pain in the knee doesn't mean we need to act it out by either moving the body or getting tight in the body. It can just be the pain and the not liking of it. Recognize, don't act out. And the third instruction is don't believe the thought that I can't practice until this distraction, this obstacle goes away. It's just a thought. Recognize that it is possible to practice. Practice again is just to be open and relax with the way things are in the moment seeing things clearly and relaxing or accepting, letting things take their natural course. And the fourth instruction is to let the hindrance, let the obstacle reveal itself. So instead of using the mind to go figure it out or to get rid of it, Instead of that, we create the space for the obstacle to unwind or to reveal itself. Just keep giving it space, the space of awareness to do its thing. Even if it gets more intense or more disturbing. Recognize, don't act out. Don't believe the thought, I can't practice with this. Allow the disturbance, the distraction to reveal itself in the space of awareness. So we'll be sitting for a few more, few more minutes.
and for the last few seconds just realizing this possibility of a more complete acceptance of how it is now, this body and mind. Can this all be okay the way it is here and now? Remember, you can do this gesture if that feels good, Anjali. And then just mindfully adjusting, stretching, any way that feels good. That was maybe even a few minutes more than 30 minutes, just to give yourself a sense of what's possible. Of course, it's often easier to sit here with a group of people than at home alone. But uh, just to get the sense that it is possible to sit for a period of time. And then one of the nice things about sitting for longer periods is, first of all, there's there's just a very real effect of holding the body relatively still for a period of time. The, the system settles down. There's a real principle that when the body moves, the mind moves. So when the body is relatively still, the mind begins to settle down some. But the other nice thing about longer sitting periods is you get to see these natural cycles where the mind goes from an agitated state to a relatively settled state to an agitated state. And you know, you can cycle through many sort of phases in one 30-minute sit or 45-minute sit or even a 20-minute sit. And then we tend to not take the different phases so seriously. Like when things are really great, it's not like we imagine it's going to be this way forever. And when it's really bad, we don't think it's going to be this way forever because we know things come and go. This is a difficult mind state. It will be here for a while and then it will be something else. Well, this is a beautiful mind state. It will be here for a while, and then it will be something else. So it would be nice to hear from people, not just in terms of what you noticed tonight in the sit, but what you've been noticing at home during your sitting periods, what you're learning, what's been difficult, and especially the particular theme of like, uh, what kind of obstacles are arising, how have you learned to be skillful with the different distractions or obstacles that have have been arising in your practice, which ones seem not so easy to be skillful with, and any questions that you might have about the instructions. So what comes to mind? Mm-hmm. Yes. Maybe a little bit louder so they can hear you over there. Being able to use what you're learning on the cushion in, in real life situation. And I kind of had experience like that the last couple of weeks. I got um, had a 
physical had some different you know, blood results that come back that weren't, weren't the greatest. And I, I felt like I was good for a while. And then I you know, kept busy and I was like, you know what, this is just information and I don't need to run into this. But then it like left my own devices. I guess I had too much to do. I ran and I, I was sick and depressed and abandoned and everything else just because of this little piece of information. Mm-hmm. But it's so funny how Yeah. But it wasn't as bad as it would have been probably a few years ago before I started discovering more mindfulness and ways of dealing with situations. Mm-hmm. This is the situation, and I be with this situation. Yeah. It was just a way that I realized that this is a good practice for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, could you say your name? Kristen. Kristen, thanks, Kristen. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing is, um, even even seeing the mind take some pain and concoct, you know, a lot of suffering out of it, seeing that is very useful, because a lot of times we're doing that, but we're not aware that we're doing it. So, being aware how the mind can create a lot of mess is a real step in the right direction, but it's not necessarily pleasant to see. It's disturbing to see it, but it's really good to see it. And um, another thing um, from what Kristen said to just pay pay attention to is like something can happen and initially we might have a kind of composed, open, uh, kind of a dropping of the defensiveness or the reactivity just there with the pain or the uncertainty. But then, when we're under stress, you know, when things get busier, we lose that composure. Once we lose that composure, it's a very slippery slope, you know, because that now instead of looking at that pain or whatever that disturbance, you know, that that information created in your mind, whatever that disturbance is, we're we're react to it. But then, then the reaction actually blows it up a bit, so then we react to the reaction, the effect of the reaction, and it can build, I mean, right into a panic attack. I'm sure you have seen that, at at least to some degree. So, um, and this is again just a principle we want to understand. It's true with children, we see that with children a lot, you know, when they're under stress, they kind of revert back to sort of emotional patterns that maybe we saw when they were three, but now they're seven. But because they're under stress, tired, they're acting out like a three-year-old. Well, it's exactly the same with us. When we're calm, well-rested, at the beginning you know, of hearing this information, we might be able to be really mindful with it and bring a lot of wisdom. You know, it's just information, maybe this and maybe that. It's really unsure now. But right now, it's just information. It's just thoughts, it's just images about what might happen. It's just fear. It's just this. You know, we can have a lot of composure. Memories or thoughts rather come up, emotions come up, but we just see them as present moment phenomena and we don't run with it. We don't concoct a lot of self drama around it. But when we get tired, we forget, basically. And then we get into these negative uh, um, feedback loops where things can get very dark and difficult for periods of time. 
but eventually we'll notice. You know, if we've got the momentum of mindfulness, eventually we'll notice I'm a suffering being, and it's like this. We'll notice that the mind is in a dark, tight, heavy, contracted place. We'll notice that there's a lot of, you know, mental content swirling and a lot of physical tension associated with the mental content moving or being held in the body. So we'll notice that and we will be reminded, oh, you know, reaction is just going to feed this. What's the alternative? The alternative we know. The alternative is to see it and to receive it, like to receive the experience. The Whatever contraction has been whipped up in the body, we have to receive it. So if our shoulders are up to the height of our ears, we have to notice how tight the body is. If the mind is all frozen in fear, we have to notice that. That's the alternative to reacting. The longer we've been reacting, the harder it is actually to turn toward our experience and open to it. Because in a way, we've created um, more pain. And so we have, in a sense, it seems like we have more of an incentive to avoid being mindful. Because to be mindful, like there's this big wave. So we, it seems like the best strategy is to keep running toward distraction and denial or reactivity of one sort or another. But we learn pretty quickly that running from the way it is doesn't work. It itself is just more pain. And I probably mentioned, you know, the second arrow talk that the Buddha gave. Did I? Do you remember me saying this? It's just a image the Buddha used that's very graphic. And he said, you know, being a human being, we get sh- we get hit with darts, with arrows. It's just inevitable. You know, there's the bumps and bruises and the sadness and the sorrow and the disappointments that just naturally occur to human beings. So it's inevitable we're going to get hit with arrows. But what normal human beings do when they get hit with an arrow is they create another arrow, right? So the other arrow is, I don't like having this arrow. I wish this arrow didn't happen. Why did it happen to me? I, you know, Or who can I blame? But all of that proliferation around the pain is the second arrow. This we can do something about. The first arrow we can't do anything about because being human beings, we're vulnerable to arrows. I mean, that just comes with the territory. There's nothing we can do about that. But there's absolutely something we can do about the second arrows that that come our way. Thanks, Kristen, for sharing that. What else have you been noticing in your practice? Yes, say your name, please. I'm Hillary. Yeah, good question, and it's really right on the some of the content I wanted to cover tonight, so I'll take a couple minutes. Um, so there are a couple points here. One is, it is difficult, 
and there will be particular triggers that are more seductive than other triggers and it's different for different people like you may be somebody who's had to work with a lot of sorrow so when sorrow gets triggered in your life you have sadness you, you've developed skill not to be swept away into a lot of thinking a lot of uh, concocting around the sorrow the sadness but another person maybe just less practiced with sadness when sadness arises they're gone basically they they're thinking about the sadness and they're taking the sadness very personally and they're a million literally a million miles away from just feeling sadness as sadness and they're into layers and layers of content about being a sad person but not wanting to be a sad person or wondering if I'll ever not be a sad person or whatever you know there's really no end to mental proliferation once we get going you know the process of association just keeps going where is the end of the process of mental association the only end is when we get distracted to another chain of association you know or fall asleep and then basically our dreams when we're dreaming we're doing the same thing it's just one thought leading to another so it's really helpful to know the particularly seductive places like for me for example things that are real trigger that I can get take personally and then get lost in are things where I feel that people mistrust me or don't understand me I mean it's like it's a real button for me if um, somebody misinterprets it from my point of view misinterprets my action or my intentions and sees like I'm, uh, imagines imagines that I'm being unskillful <laughs> instead of what I'm really being <laughs> and that's like a button for me it's like I, I, I take it personally and I have to correct their view or you know which only makes it worse of course to somehow be defensive in that way so like knowing that then it's like so when that starts to unfold in the situation in my life you know if I know if I've fallen into that hole enough times and you know I'm aware that you know hey I'm, I'm, I want to practice with this I don't want to suffer forever then I can be on the lookout for that situation and I can remind myself as I'm entering that kind of situation where I'm beginning to notice somebody mistrusting me misinterpreting me at least from my point of view and it's like I can ring the mindfulness bell you know honey pay attention notice what you're feeling oh you know I'm feeling you know shame or feeling anger or feeling not understood or you know whatever that emotion is it is what I'm feeling I can notice that and here's the key when you start noticing the triggers for you you want to go as quickly as you can from the content to the pain itself so there's the content and right with the content is sort of the different emotional flavors so the content means the actual thoughts and images the, uh, the emotion is like the flavor the emotional flavor and then there's the actual hurt of those emotions and that's that's where you want to go because the hurt is less seductive content's very seductive and you know content is mostly used as a defense system it's like if we think about our pain it gives us a semblance of distance from it 
but the distance actually isn't any real distance. We're still feeling the pain. We're just distracted from the fact that we're feeling the pain. And we're using a painful activity to distract ourselves from the pain we're actually experiencing. So it's the second dart again, the second arrow. So if we can go as quickly as possible right to the hurt and be really authentic, be really real that this heart hurts. Now it's not so easy if we're in the midst of some interaction. So you, you know, for a long time we're going to need as much as possible to simplify the situation, you know, to excuse yourself. I got to go use the bathroom. You know, I can't be here right now. I've got to end the conversation. You know, I got to. I'm upset, and I need to just be alone for a while. So you, we, we, you know, if we have to, we remove ourselves from the situation, and then whatever posture we're in, if we're standing or sitting or whatever, walking. But what we really want to do is we want to train the mind to go from the content to the emotion, right to the hurt, and develop the capacity to be open and relaxed, alert and relaxed with the pain as it's happening, as it's moving in the heart and the mind. And then there's a chance. Now, that we can do that for a while, but then if we get distracted or if we get exhausted, then it's easy to lose it. And just because we're really mindful and present with the pain for two seconds, doesn't mean we're going to be there for the third second. So when we start getting swept away, we want to notice that the mental proliferation coincides with an increase in suffering, an increase in pain. We want to learn that in our bones, that thinking about it, reacting to pain, and thinking about pain does not alleviate pain. So we have to see it. So instead of, like, when you start proliferating around the pain, and then you notice that you're doing that, that's actually something to be appreciated. Don't judge yourself in that moment. Oh, I'm thinking about it again. Because that's painful. (laughs) That's judging yourself. That's more pain. Appreciate, oh, I'm noticing that thinking about it is more pain. That's called wisdom. We're developing wisdom by noticing something unskillful. We're being mindful of an unskillful pattern which is to think about pain, to react to pain, which leads to more pain. When we see that pattern clearly, we'll drop it. It's like when we notice we're holding a hot pan, we don't sit there and think, should I let go? We just let go. But we have to see this um, unskillful pattern in living color many, 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 many times. But every time we see it, the habit of reacting to pain by, with thinking, with aversion and greed, basically. Greed for something away from it, aversion for it. Those basic patterns of reactivity. The more we see that in living color, the more the mind is trained not to go there. But we have to keep seeing it. This is how we rewire the mind. And so we notice, and the sooner we notice it, the less pain involved. You know, and uh, there's an old meditation story that, you know, in terms of a chariot and a chariot, uh, a horse and a charioteer, that uh, in terms of different kinds of chariot horses, some of the horses, you know, if you wanted to do what you as the charioteer want to do, some horses you have to beat it to get it to do what it's supposed to do. 
But other horses have more wisdom, you know, a little flick of the whip or even a little click sound and the horse responds. And so initially we're a little bit like the horse that needs to be beaten. Like we really have to feel the pain, see the pain mind, with mindfulness before the heart lets go of its reactive pattern. But over time we'll catch it sooner and it's just very quickly the mind, oh, don't want to go there. Thinking about it doesn't help. Reacting to it doesn't help. The only thing that really works is to recognize that in this moment it's like this. Denial is futile, reaction is futile, acceptance is the way. The hard way is the easy way. Opening to, when life is difficult, opening to it is the easy way. Reacting to it is not easy. Because it just, it's the pain, just because we're not conscious that we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. And on top of the denial of suffering is all the pain involved in denying the suffering. So there's like a second arrow or a second layer. Thanks, Hilary. Other thoughts that people have? What are you noticing? What's difficult? Even what's beautiful? It's always nice to share if you feel like something um, wholesome develops at times in your meditation. It's really nice to share what you're noticing, how you notice that that comes to be. Yeah, T. Huh. And it doesn't matter if I'm here or if I'm at home in the place that I meditate at home, but I get a really powerful smell of mm-hmm. baking bread, hmm. and then it goes away. Uh, I'm assuming you like the smell of baked bread. Yeah. <laughs> I do bake bread. Yeah, yeah. So I, who knows what's going on, but one thing that happens a lot, you know, the mind works by association. So when the mind comes into a calm, clear place, like it might when you're baking bread and you're just giving your heart to the activity, you know, and there's some joy involved, maybe you're going to share the bread, and just that feeling of generosity is imbued and fused in the making of the bread. And so the whole thing is a wholesome, pleasant, calming activity. So then when in mindfulness practice or meditation practice you enter a similar mind state, then it, the mind, it just in its habit of kind of making sense, just sort of assumes you're making bread because that's where you've experienced that mind state previously. So the mind concocts 95% of our reality. I mean, it really does. And so it's, it's nice to notice that. But what you might want to train your mind to do in that when you notice the smell of bread, instead of like looking at the smell of bread, notice the pleasantness of the moment. Just like what I was saying to Hillary, when things are difficult, we want to go from the content right to the pain, the hurt. Well, it's just the opposite. When there's a wholesome, pleasant state, we want to go right from the content, like I'm with my best friend, or I'm doing what I really like to do, or I'm smelling fresh baked bread. We want to go right from the content to the pleasantness, like notice that the heart is experiencing pleasantness and really tune into that. And uh, so you're being mindful of pleasantness or mindful of unpleasantness. 
and that's that will lead to some deep learning. It's always in a very calm, really, really calm, unattached, undistracted time. Yeah. So my sense is the mind doesn't know what to do with that experience, so it's it's trying to concoct a reason. So it makes it seem like you're doing something where you've had that similar mind state before. Yeah. Yeah, just like, you know, uh, as the mind gets more and more calm, the mind will vary, because the mind, when the mind gets really concentrated and calm, it's, it's hyper-energetic, it's very alive. It's not a dull state. And in that aliveness, in that brightness, the mind can concoct anything. It's very creative. And it's actually one of the most difficult things in practice is to not get seduced, in, as the mind gets more concentrated, seduced by what the mind creates. It can concoct anything. You can see the Buddha or Jesus in front of you. You can see light. All kinds of different experiences will arise. And as a meditator, as a mindfulness practitioner, we just are mindful of those, those sort of manifestations of the mind. But we don't take them personally. We don't reject them, but we don't indulge in them. We just notice the smell of the fresh bread. And then you can use the instruction I gave you, which is to just tune into what the pleasantness of the moment itself. And you're not, so you're not pushing the smell of the bread away, but you're actually using the smell of the bread as a, a kind of a doorway to the experience of pleasantness. And you're being mindful of pleasantness. Which is a it's a difficult but a very important skill to, to develop to be mindful of pleasantness without being seduced by the sort of superficial content that might be present with that experience of pleasantness. That's a real skill. It's it's even more easy. It's even easier rather to get swept away by pleasant experience than unpleasant experience. You think it's hard to be mindful of unpleasant experience. It's harder to be mindful of pleasant experience. Especially now, because now I am disappointed when I don't smell it. Yeah, there you go. Somewhat expected occasionally. Mm -hmm. And wonder how I can entice that experience back. Well, you can bake bread. <laughs> <laughs> and share it. I, <laughs> we'll expect it next Tuesday night. Thanks for bringing that up, T. Other thoughts people have? Yeah. The, um, I forgot your name again. Oh, Doug, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Doug. Yeah, I'm stripping away. Um, I feel, um, you know, I bounce around what I'm hearing tonight with the useful stuff and uh, related to a lot of it. But it kind of bounce around the meditation from <clears throat> pleasant to unpleasant. <clears throat> Pardon me, and have predictable reactions to these, which I find interesting unto itself. But what I'm finding uh, difficult to grasp here, you're saying get past the content and get to the core of what you're actually feeling. That's where things get complicated for me. And I, I imagine in part because my training is so uh, content oriented. Yeah. Getting, I mean, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, like getting past the content, like what on earth? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, like for example, you know, would you classify this experience? that you're having right now is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Pleasant. Okay. So 
What exactly is happening right now that led you to say pleasant? Uh, since uh, growth doing something uh, really positive. Right, right. But what is the actual present moment experience of that growth? Like, how are you? What is the visceral? Let's call it visceral because that might make it more kind of grounded a little bit. Like so. Like, where is this experience of growth happening? How do you know? Like, what is the experience that, that leads you to say growth? You know, learning, growth. Do you know what I mean? It's an actual experience, that pleasantness. It's not a concept. It's not the description of why it's pleasant. It's the actual, or why the moment's good. It's an actual experience. When we're happy, happiness is actually something that's happening in the moment or it's not happiness. When we're suffering, suffering is something that's actually happening. Stress is actually something that happens. But you're absolutely right, Doug. We don't, we're not trained to notice it on that level. We're trained to notice our thoughts about what's happening. Joko Beck has this great description. I might have mentioned this, but it's just worth saying again if I have. She's a well-known uh, Zen teacher in San Diego, one of the older Western teachers. I think she's in her mid-80s now. And uh, she has this great description that, you know, it's like as a human being, we have this perfectly fine house, you know, nice little cottage type house, bungalow, whatever, nice neighborhood, well built. And then what do we do? We go and build another house right on top of it. And then that house we have becomes dark and dank. And this superstructure, the house around the house, is like our thoughts. So we've got a life. And then we think about the life that we have. And, it's, and we sort of forget about our life. And we're kind of fixated on our thoughts about our life, the superstructure. So, you know, in terms of getting to go from the content to the experience, it, it's a little tricky. But when you know you're suffering, how is it that you know that you're suffering? You know, really look at the actual experience. Like, where is the experience? So you can even ask your question. Where is the experience of happiness? Where is the experience of unhappiness? And this is where mindfulness of body can be useful. I'm not saying that happiness and unhappiness exists in the body, but it's reflected in the body, and it will take us out of our thoughts about why we're happy, or our thoughts about why we're not happy, into the actual contraction or release of the heart. You know, when we're unhappy, something's contracted or held or heavy. When we're happy, that heaviness, that contraction, is not there. There's a release or the absence of suffering. And happiness, actually, that's a good definition of happiness. It's the absence of contraction or the absence of weight in the heart. And by the heart, I'm not, I mean, in a sense, I'm talking about this energetic center. But really what I mean by heart is the place where we feel weighed down when we're weighed down and the place where we feel not weighed down when we're happy. And That's the heart. Anywhere in the body. Yeah, I mean the body is already, it's what's here and now and uh, we call that the heart and yes, it's the both the body and the mind. It's the space of the body and the mind. That's how my therapist taught me to feel. Mm -hmm. is would stop when I'm in the middle of something, not knowing that I'm feeling anything. And she'll stop and say, stop, 
Yeah. Yeah, generally mindfulness of the body is the best way to learn this. Yeah. But it's beyond the body. I mean, mindful, I mean, uh, happiness is reflected in the body, but happiness is really a mental state. Unhappiness is a mental state. But the body reflects the mind and the mind reflects the body. And the body is just a much more accessible thing to learn from, initially especially. So that, that you know, using Anne, is it right? Yeah, Anne's point about really start with the body. Like, how is, if you're feeling, it's like if you have the sense that you're happy now, so how is that expressed viscerally, energetically in the body? How is unhappiness expressed viscerally, energetically in the body? Yeah, what's your name? My name's Richard. Um, kind of along these lines, Terry. One of the things I notice when I'm really into something, happy about it or something like that, I kind of lose a sense of time. It's like time doesn't exist. You know, there's just whatever, you know, I'm into at the moment. You know, that's, that's it. Um, but that almost seems like the opposite of mindfulness. You know, you're losing an entire sense. So I'm kind of confused about that right now. Is that something that is... I mean, if I would experience that in meditation, which I have yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, is that something that I could take as kind of an indication that I have kind of reached a state where I'm actually enjoying this or you know, like mm -hmm. some kind of a plateau? Or would this be more of an indication that uh, I'm not really being mindful? Well, actually it could be both. But absolutely, the more wholehearted, the more devoted, the more surrendered you are to the breathing process or to whatever you're being mindful of in a particular moment, time will disappear because time is a concept. Is there really a past? I mean, is there a past anywhere? Look, is there a past anywhere? I mean, we can think about something now that we call the past, but is there really past anywhere? Is there a future anywhere? Is there a future out somewhere? Out somewhere? <laughs> no, but we concoct an idea. Time is a complete construction of the mind. Right? Right? Do we, do we have any proof there's time? What is time? We imagine a past. It's like somehow we have a thought, which we call past, and we, we somehow you know, in our minds, we concoct a way of imagining that we're throwing the past behind us, and we do the same with the future, but we throw it in front of us. So we got these concepts now that gives some kind of sense of dimensionality to time, but it's all here. So concepts fall away when the mind becomes more and more mindful. The experience of time disappears. The, the, the experience of, of uh, Anything that splits or fragments reality falls away. So the, the predominant flavor of mindfulness as it develops is wholeness or a non-fragmentation, a non-separation, and the joy that comes with that wholeness. That's the predominant flavor of a mind that's wholly present, fully present. So, yeah, but... We, we can also lose a sense of time when we're kind of in a trance-like state, too. 
you know, like you go to sleep and then you wake up and you go, oh, boy, that went fast. <laughs> so time can also disappear when we're unconscious, like in a trance state or actually asleep. Um, but, but when time disappears in a mindful state, we know the difference between the two. The mindful state is hyper-energetic. There's a real alive, bright feeling when we're mindful, when the mind is in balance in that way. When we're in a trance-like state or an unconscious state, it doesn't feel that way. It may feel calm, it may feel tranquil, but it doesn't feel like alive and bright. It doesn't feel like uh, uh, a feeling of wholeness isn't there like it is uh, when we're mindful. Does that make sense? Yeah. A little bit of time left. Yeah. Say your name. Jason. Jason. I would say that, I mean, it depends. I'm, you know, I'm not inside your head. That it could be either, but it's more likely a trance. Mostly, mostly all of us, and I include myself, mostly we're living in a trance. Uh, and the trance, you know, so we think of trance like kind of zoned out, which of course sometimes we are. But there's also called like uh, fear trances or greed trances. So one, like I know when I'm in that multitasking hyper mode, I got a lot of emails I got to deal with. There's just a lot of loose ends at the center and just volunteers doing so many things that need to be given information and programs to plan and this and that let alone preparing for programs. And so I, I'm basically moving the time, some of the time at least, uh, based on fear and greed trances. So there's like anxiety, that's my fear trance. And in that anxiety mode, sort of the, the flavor of the mind and body is tension, is the tension of anxiety. And it is kind of uh, fueled by these thoughts. And I'm abuzz with that energy, and I do things out of that energy. And sometimes it's greed, you know, like the anticipation. And greed can look a lot like joy, you know, as we're planning something we're really excited about and want things to turn out right. And we're literally in that trance, but we call it our life. So we don't call it a trance, but it's really a trance. We're not really aware of what we're doing. We're not really learning. And we're not aware in mindfulness, in the Buddhist path, mindfulness is really directed to the experience of suffering or stress and the absence of stress and suffering. And when we're kind of being swept along by greed or aversion, and I, and I don't mean in gross states, so this is subtle greed, you know, just the excitement and the anticipation and the hopefulness, 
or subtle aversion like, oh, I've got to get this done so I'll be saved, you know, so I don't have to worry about it. When we're being swept along by those emotions, we're not really learning anything. We're just trying to get to the goal at the end. In aversion, we're, the goal at the end is to be done with something that we don't like, to get away from something, like get something in control so we can be at ease. And greed is like wanting something out there in the future, becoming something. So when we're being swept along by that, I'd call those trance states, and you're right, a whole lifetime goes by very quickly. You know, and there we are on our deathbed wondering, well, what was that about? <laughs> you know, because we were swept away all life, you know, about getting away from something, and then we realize our life is over. And so what was the point? Or getting something, and then it's over, and then we, like, what's the point? So I think there is a lot, a lot of the time we are just swept along by trance-like states. And they're not, you know, it's sort of relative misery. So it may not stand out like what we imagine misery is. So we don't think of it as being bad. And in some ways, you know, there are other existences that are much more painful, more obvious suffering. But that doesn't mean it's a, it's a life we actually want to live. And unfortunately, we have to settle down enough to even realize how unpleasant the life we normally live is. As I said before, just because we don't realize how much suffering there is doesn't mean we're not suffering. You know, so it's like um, I just had a conversation today with a man, one of our leaders here, who spent three months at... Um, Buddhist monastery in New Zealand, Ajahn Chandako, some of you know, he comes every summer to do some programs here. He'll come again in June and July. And uh, he grew up in Minnesota. He's a Western Buddhist monk. And he's the abbot of a small monastery in New Zealand. So this guy went down and just gave himself to the monastic schedule for the three months and did a lot of work and practiced. And sort of just absorbed into that, you know. And then when he comes back, you know, his perspective on his life and on just sort of our culture that we all live with is very different. Because when you step out of it, then, then what we step back into, we can see. But if we never step out of it, it's not so easy to see. And this is one of the real advantages about daily sitting practice. It's our daily chance to step out of our life not so much to step out of our lives, but so that we can notice what our life actually is. It kind of gives perspective on the life we're living. And if we don't have perspective on the life we're living, we'll never know whether it's the life we want to live or not. So we need to create a calm and a relatively empty, quiet space so we get a sense then when our mind starts operating at its normal frequency, we get a sense of whether that's wholesome or not. Otherwise, it will never occur to us whether it's wholesome or not. We'll just assume well, it's just the way it is. Anxiety is just the way it is, you know, or greed is just the way it is. And it isn't a question of whether it's there's an other alternative or wholesome or not wholesome. It's just the way it is. So this would be something to do with homework this week, is to notice in moments, especially when there's a sense of some settling in the practice, or right at the very end of the sit before you get up, just notice, like really make a point of noticing now the sense of spaciousness or the sense of 
quiet or calm. And then notice as you enter your world again, and notice the perspective, like notice what it appears like as you see the clutter on your desk, as you see your calendar and your to-do list, as you imagine the things you want to do that night or get. Just notice then what that does. And, and even in your sit when you have calm and then a, a memory comes up, notice that effect between just being with the breath for a few seconds and then being drawn into some drama. Even if it's not the most terrible drama, but just the drama and then notice that. Next week when we come back, we'll do the loving kindness practice. It's a really powerful antidote when we're really caught and, and mindfulness isn't strong enough to free the mind from its attachments, its reactivity. And so we'll use that as an antidote. And we'll come back to just the basic approach to working with difficulties. And you can take a look at the handout. If you missed any handouts from previous weeks, they're up here. And next week we'll also look at walking meditation practice. So have a good week, everyone. You might want to brush off your cushion and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.